Hey, what's up, church? How are you guys doing? It is good to see you. Welcome to our first ever only online weekend. Uh, it's gonna be a good time. Uh, I know it's not the best of circumstances, uh, but we're gonna make the best of it. It's kind of weird being here in this empty room, uh, missing all of you guys, uh, but we're excited to bring church to your home. Uh, so here's what you can expect today. We're gonna have a brief time of worship through music. We're gonna have some community life updates. And uh, then we're gonna dive into the word. Uh, we're gonna continue along in our series going through the book of First Peter. It's pretty sweet how applicable it is uh, and relevant to today and our circumstances today. We're just gonna dive into God's word. Um, so grab your families, circle up, and uh, let's get ready to spend some time with the Lord. Let's do it. Sing it out. Let the king of my heart be the mountain where I run, the fountain I drink from. Oh, he is my song. Let the king of my heart be the shadow where I hide, the ransom for my life. Oh, he is my song, because you are good, good. You are good. You're never gonna 
you from wherever you are. I'm no longer What great words. No longer a slave to fear. You know, I bet some of us have been a bit anxious, haven't we? Think of all the things that have changed just in the last seven days. You know, if you're a little anxious, I got a a great verse for you. Check this out from Psalm 139, verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. You know, this is one of those times where we're thinking about all kinds of things that make us anxious. Number one, will I have enough toilet paper? Number two, will I have enough bottled water? Number three, on a more serious note, you're just worried about the people in your home and you don't want anybody to get sick. And so there are times that we're anxious, but I bet that you've already been bringing those anxious thoughts to the Lord. Because he's does have, he does have this. He's got this. And so would you take a moment and right where you're sitting with your family, whoever's watching this with you, we would normally have you greet one another and answer this question. So do this. How has God met your need during this time of a little bit of anxiety, if we're really honest? Go ahead and share for a moment, would you? All right. Well, welcome back. I hope you had a chance to to share together. Hey, I want to just bring you up to date on some of the things that affect us as a church, kind of the community life uh, aspect of ABF. First of all, I hope you've been getting our emails from Pastor Scott, because this is the way we'll try to stay connected with you. Uh, If you haven't, you can just go to info at agurabible.org and uh, go ahead and sign up for that. And that's a lot of great information. And we'll be communicating to you on a pretty regular basis. Number two, life groups. People have been saying, hey, we got less than 10 in our life group. Can we just kind of meet? Well, here's what we'd like you to do. You know, we want to try to honor what our civil authorities have told us to do in terms of congregating. And so here's what we're suggesting. Would you get together virtually uh, with your life group? There are so many ways to do that. Download Zoom, et cetera. Your life group leaders have some instructions on how to gather you together. In fact, this week, one of our life groups had a virtual game night together and they had a blast. So you can stay connected through your life group, texting, uh, uh, on the phone, et cetera, et cetera. Then lastly, you know that there are ways that um, a church has to be able to survive during these times when we're not uh, meeting. And so we know that your generosity really will make a difference. So let me remind you again, there are four ways to give, even though we're not meeting here physically. Number one, you can give online on our website. Number two, you can give uh, through our app, Uh, Number three, you can just mail your check-in to the church office. And number four, you can just drop off that check. Now, our office hours are Monday through Thursday from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. And uh, those are all four ways that you can give.
Well, hey kids, it is good to virtually see you. I miss you so much. I hope you're hanging in there and you're being good for your parents as you are doing your online school and figuring out what it means to be at home with your parents 24-7. Well, hey, you know what? A brighter side of this coronavirus is that we actually have this family time. We get to do what matters most, be with our families. You know, today our family actually got together. We sat around the breakfast table. We had a time of prayer and we studied God's word together. Um, we were talking and we were praying for our, um, our nurses, our doctors, our nation's leaders, and those that have been affected by the coronavirus. And this was a sweet time for us. We had this extra time that we got to sit around and be together. So I hope your family is able to do that too. Well, one of the verses that our family has been studying is Ephesians 4.32, and you're welcome to adopt this one as your own. Um, it says, be kind to one another tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Well, hey, at Ki in Kids Blast, we've been uh, studying the theme of forgiveness all the way through March. You kids remember, we've been looking that up. We've been tearing it apart and seeing what Christ tells us to do about forgiveness. So I think this is such a timely me uh, message for all of us living in such close quarters. So families, I hope you will take a look at the weekly Bible story videos and worship experiences that I've been sending out in your emails. If you haven't got that email, go online and check out our website and you'll be able to download those family experiences. And I hope you take the time to do it so we can continue growing together in God's word in Kids Blast. Well, I wanted to let you know that we have something fun also planned for your family, and we've kind of got a competition going on. So this is what I want you to do, families. Each week, I'm going to ask you to do the family challenge. And this week's family challenge is to build the most amazing and creative living room fort. Okay, can you do that for me? And then I want you to gather the kids, take a picture of, you, of yourselves in that fort, and send it in. And we're going we're gonna to post those online and we're going to have some fun with that and wait for next week's challenge as well. Well, as a church staff, we've been checking in with different families to see how everybody's doing, see how we're all surviving in our quarantine. And we've got a little video that we put together for you. So check out this. There's the boys playing basketball. Haven't left the house since Friday. I've been jewelry beating. And there's Sabine. All right, stay safe. I'm making dinner, such as pot stickers. I don't know. Uh, stir fry rice. Um, oh, hi. Yeah. Now left foot, now left foot, right foot, now left foot, right foot, now left foot, one hand, one hand, two hands, two hands, two hands. Did your rally? Did that? 
Hey, it was so fun to get a chance to see the videos of some of the different things people are doing to kind of fill the time, fill the gap. I will be honest, I cannot think of a time I've ever seen so many people out and about in their communities, riding bikes, enjoying things. I mean, dance parties. I mean, it looks like uh, people are making the most out of this. And so praise God for that. Something that the enemy meant for evil, uh, God's people are getting to use for good. And so excited to see that. Well, I'm looking forward to just sharing with you for a few minutes from God's word. And really, to be honest, this past week, there's been a little bit of anxiety as to what in the world do I teach about? What do I share about? I watched a lot of sermons in the past week of people listing these, the five things that you do in response to the virus. And as I was feeling that, I was like, man, what, how do I respond to that? What's the appropriate thing for me to teach on? And the more I thought about it and sought the Lord on it, the more I was convinced that really, I don't feel the the calling to walk people through a pandemic, but I do feel the calling on my life to teach God's word. And it's because I'm convinced that God's word actually wants to walk us through situations like this and any kind of thing that we're working through as a community and as a church. So then uh, the second thing that I wrestled through is like, well, do we start a new series? Do I start with something fresh, go a whole different route? Then as I was looking at our current series, the title Rock Solid, I was like, you know what? This is the ideal topic for this situation. What is Peter writing to? He's writing to a church that's been displaced, that's isolated, that's facing trials, that's most likely feeling discouraged. I don't know how much more relevant we could be in the book of 1 Peter. So I'm excited to uh, to dive back into 1 Peter. We're in chapter four, uh, working through the first 11 verses here. And uh, I wanna start though with a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this chance to be together. Even though we don't get to be together physically, we're present here because of your spirit that binds us together. We invite you to teach us now through your word. We invite you to speak to us. And as usual, God, we lay the burdens of the week down so that we can have an encounter with you. We invite that now in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So looking at this week's passage, it reminded me of a word that maybe you're familiar with. The word is this. The word is paradox. Webster's Dictionary defines Uh, paradox as a statement that is seemingly contradictory or opposed to common sense and yet is perhaps true. So again, a seemingly contradictory to common sense, but perhaps true. You can think of maybe some different examples in your life of different paradoxes. One might be an employee that says, man, I end up working less, but I get more accomplished. That would be an example of a paradox. Or maybe an actor might say that they love being in the public eye, but they deeply value their privacy. Computers are designed to save time, but they can end up needing tons of maintenance and upkeep. All of these things are paradoxes. And what you find, the more you dig into scripture, is that God's word is packed with paradox. Jesus was a a teaching paradox. He basically presented ideas that would have been so countercultural when he used these expressions, when he says the, the last shall be first, or when he says it's more blessed to give than receive, those in and of themselves were paradoxes. Well, this passage in 1 Peter is jammed packed with paradox, jammed packed with paradox that I believe is relevant to some of the stuff we've been facing now. We'll see as we work through the text, if you can maybe identify some of your own. 
We'll start in verse one with our first paradox. It says this, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. We'll stop there for a moment for a little explanation. I find it fascinating that the very first thing it says there is tells us to arm yourself. This is an expression that somebody would use when they're getting ready for battle. I don't know, probably in our church community, not a lot of people have experienced real genuine battle, but maybe if you're a guy like me, you've had a chance to at some point in your life, play a little bit of paintball. When you show up at these different paintball uh, courses or fields where they play, I'm always blown away with how much stuff people have armed themselves with, whether it's shields, whether it's body armor, whether it's paint grenades, people get really serious about what they bring into battle. But it's fascinating to me that that's not at all what we're told to do here. It says to arm yourself, but in the most unique ways. The way we arm ourselves or prepare ourselves to protect ourselves is by aligning my thinking with Jesus's thinking. It starts, the battle starts with the mind. To me, it's fascinating how much in scripture it always keeps going back again and again to the battle that occurs within the mind. We've seen that, I'm sure if you're like me in the past week where you're trying to battle to keep perspective as you're watching the news, as you're kind of getting inundated with different articles and different graphs that are showing the projection of where things are going to head. All of that leaves us to wrestle through where is our mind at? Here it's telling the best strategy for dealing with circumstances like we're in right now, the, the best way to battle with that, the best way to arm yourself, if you will, is to prepare your mind to align it to God's will. And the question is, what, how do, what does that mean, align it with God's will? It's fascinating that it says here that we're supposed to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking as Jesus. And if you're really to isolate it and break it down, Jesus' thinking was armed like this. He was determined to do God's will regardless of the consequences, regardless of the comfort factor, regardless of the convenience. For us, we're to have the exact same mindset to say, hey, I'm in this regardless of what my circumstances may look like. I will obey God's will regardless of the cost. That resolve changes everything. Once you have that resolve, then all of a sudden the circumstances don't mind, matter as much because you've already determined in your heart and in your mind that you're going to follow his will. He points out also in that section of scripture that the reminder that we can't go back to our old ways. One of the natural things when we're in panic and we're, we're in a difficult situation is to revert back to our old fleshly ways. It might not be that you're going to drunken orgies as described in the text, but you can still go back to the old way of responding to things emotionally or with anger. He's saying no more, no more having to do with that. We're to change our focus from the way that we used to live by human passions and now to the will of God. 
I find it interesting his expression that he uses there. He says the, the past, he says, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. In other words, you've already sampled that and seen how detrimental, detrimental and dangerous that type of living is. He's calling us to something different. For us, again, has to do with the mind. If we go back to, the, to protecting our mind, you would tell yourself, I'm not going to engage in that type of living because it's unhealthy. It only leads to memory, to misery. When I think about different experiences that I've learned from in my life, one of them was uh, when I was younger, my family was on a family vacation and uh, we ended up in uh, Southern Florida and we ended up at this beach that had all of these signs that were warning us about Portuguese man of war. Now, I don't know if you know what a Portuguese man of war is, but it's a type of jellyfish that's extremely dangerous. And they had these signs up and we, we thought to ourselves, well, I think that's kind of an old sign. It's kind of past. So we decided to play some catch in the ocean just at waist level. I had a, a Portuguese man of war, one of their tentacles went across my leg. They have tentacles that are like 25 feet long. And uh, my leg swelled up to like three times its size. It was unbelievable pain. Here's the, the reason I bring that up is because it's kind of the same perspective. What he invites us to do is to learn from our past, to isolate this different situation, say, when I did it this way, that didn't work out well. For us, when we respond to our circumstances emotionally, when we respond to our, our circumstances in anger, when we lash out, that doesn't go well. For us, we need to learn from their past and be done. He says to, for the rest of the time, in other words, the remainder of our time while we're here in the flesh. So that's the first, if you will, paradox that our protection begins with the mind, the things that we focus on the things that we allow to have time or space in our mind. Second one, we'll see in verse four, says with respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh, the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Basically here, he's trying to set expectations for his audience. He tells them, don't be surprised that people don't like it when you don't participate in some of the old junk that you were a part of. The flood of debauchery, as he describes it here. Often people are offended or resentful towards you. It says that you can expect that they may even malign you. In other words, malign this idea of to speak of you poorly because of your choice to pull away from the old way of doing things. Gets a little confusing if we're honest as we watch the world around us. Sometimes we observe the world and it seems like their choices, their choice to reject God and go their own, own way leaves us thinking, hey, wait a second. It seems like their life's going pretty well. It seems like things are going all right. The paradox here is that prosperity is often a temporary illusion. Find it interesting in Psalm 73, the psalmist by the name of Asaph, he says this, it was confusing to him as well. It says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. 
When he looked around, he saw the prosperity of how well things were going. It didn't make sense. He says that he was envious of them. Verse 16, though, he comes to some conclusions. He says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. We can envy the prosperity of the wicked, but here's the reminder for us. When we look around the world and we see what's happening right now, the reminder for us is that these things, they are so fleeting. Any security that you have in anything other than Jesus Christ is completely fleeting. So many people, and I don't want to belittle what people are going through right now with resources and with uh, lost income, but we've seen just in the past week how the things of this earth that we so often find our security in are just gone in a moment. So the picture of prosperity is a temporary illusion. What does he say? He says, they'll give a, eventually, they'll give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Every single one of us will stand before Almighty God and give an account for our actions. For us, setting the right mindset that prosperity is only temporary is another paradox that I think arms us for making it through difficult circumstances like we're currently in when we have that mindset going into it. Looking, continuing in the passage, verse 7, I find this, this section pretty fascinating as the solution to it all. It says, the end of all things is at hand. Well, there's an encouraging verse for us this, uh, uh, in this gathering. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So he starts that section and uh, I don't know if I was writing a, a letter of encouragement to a group of people that that would necessarily start with that, but this is what he goes with. He says, the end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand was his word of encouragement. But here's the thing. Sometimes when people read that, they think, you know, this was 2000 years ago. Why is he saying that? Was, was he complete? Had he completely lost his mind? Here's the reality in God's word and why that was written. Jesus described this. He says that he, that no one knows the exact time of Christ's return, not even Peter. So what's Peter saying then? Peter's saying the time is approaching and it could be any moment that he returns. The time is approaching. There's an urgency that he presents because our God has chosen to leave us not knowing. You imagine uh, if you're like me and some of the conversations you've had even in the past week, people are wondering, so is this the, is this the end of time? Is, is Christ about to return? And I would say the answer to that is the exact same thing. Could be any moment. We don't know. We're not ever going to know. That's the whole idea is our God chose not to reveal that to us. So when someone asks you going through these circumstances, is this, is the, this the end of it all? Should we be saying the end of all things is at hand? I don't know if we should say that or we could potentially say, maybe, maybe this is it wrapping up. 
We're definitely a lot closer now than it was when Peter was writing these words. The reason I think that God left it the way it is, kind of ambiguous, is because he knew if it was too far off, we'd lose motivation. But if we knew too exactly when his return was, we might be frenzied and paralyzed. Instead, he's chosen to leave us, if you will, on the edge of our seats, not exactly knowing when his return will, will play out. But here we see, he tells us what, based on that, that, in, that intensity, that, that motivation of uh, urgency, he says, this is how you're intended to live. He says, be self-controlled and sober-minded. This is a picture that I think is so important as we're going through trial. This, this picture that I have is being self-controlled and sober-minded, is having control over your emotions, not allowing your emotions to control you. I remember about a a year ago when uh, Adrian and I, when we had the borderline shooting and uh, Adrian and I only live about a block and a half away from the the, uh, restaurant where that happened at. And uh, that night we woke up to the sound of gunshots. And I remember we were very, there, there, was a, there was an urgency like none other there, but we were also very precise in our decisions. We made choices. We said, all right, we need to get, make sure we have all of our kids upstairs. I sat at the top of the stairs, protecting the family. Uh, not sure what I would have done uh, if there would have been an issue. But I do remember this. There was, there was an intentionality because we knew how serious this was. There was a sober-mindedness. We weren't acting in emotion. Instead, we were trying to be self-control and sober-minded. And he says, for the sake of your prayers. He wants us to keep a steady mind. So when we're going through circumstances like this, as Adrian mentioned, even this morning, we tried to rally our little family. I sent a a, a note out to the whole church with a prayer uh, agenda for us to follow. We walked through and specifically prayed for everybody involved. For us in response to our circumstances right now, what an amazing gift we could give to say, you know what, I'm intentionally praying for you And you, can you imagine if you got a note from somebody saying, you know what, I'm committed to praying for you every single day through this experience. That's God's design. And here's the thing that he says that in verse eight, he says, above all, above all of this being self-controlled and sober-minded, he says, keep loving one another earnestly. Sometimes when we throw uh, love, the intention to love each other as the top priority around, sometimes we can think of that as kind of a kind of a hokey pokey church thing that's said, maybe something from Woodstock that love is the answer. That's the solution to everything. It's kind of fascinating when you see this though, the way that Peter describes it, it actually is. It is the solution. It is the answer to what we're going through. Think about what compels us during times like this. What is it that makes doctors and nurses work long hours and thankless uh, roles there? What is it that keeps moms diligently working with their crazy kids doing homeschooling when they know nothing about being a homeschool teacher? It's driven by love. What is it that causes us to check in with a vulnerable neighbor? What is it that opens up stores early so that the elderly can come in and get the things that are needed? All of these things, if they're in a healthy place, are compelled by love. He's saying above all, in the middle of being dispersed, in the middle of being discouraged, above all, love should be the priority. He even says love covers a multitude of sins. 
Anybody that's been married for any length of a time knows that that's a very relevant verse. If it weren't for a a loving, committed relationship, man, all of the grievances against someone would build up. But instead he's pointing here, love as the solution. So here, just when we consider the different things that are uh, paradoxes, that's definitely one of them. We might hear that and think to ourselves, is love actually the answer? Here we see that it should be a priority, something that leads us to forgive sins, something that leads us to extend hospitality, something that leads us to pray for others. That's God's design in response to difficult circumstances. Last section here in verse 10, I wanna point to, says, as each of you has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. As a parent of uh, a three, uh, three young kids, a parent of teenagers, if you will, you start to uh, pick up some of the phrases that are trending amongst that age group. And one of them I've noticed my kids say uh, more often than I'd like is they'll say in response to a circumstance, they'll say, you just do you, you just do you. Uh, that, uh, well, uh, when, when I'm asking them to do something, they'll say, maybe not directly to me, they'll be like, well, it's important that you just do you. I was thinking about that statement and I was a little bit concerned about it because really at the root of that statement is this, this principle or idea is just worry about yourself without concern for others. Just worry about you and, and that's the top priority. Here is where I would say our culture might be missing the ultimate paradox. The ultimate paradox is this. What if this life has little to do with you and everything to do with God? Little to do with you and everything to do with God. Look at this entire section. He points to first that your gifts are designed to bless others, but he's the one that gives you the gifts. He points to the extension of grace, but he's the one that's the source of grace. We're just the stewards of it. It points to our use of words and speaking to others, but he says his words, it's his words that we've been trusted with. As you serve others, it's to be done in his strength, in order, notice this verse, at part in verse 11, in order that in everything, God may be glorified. In everything, God may be glorified. Here's the paradox, is that when we get down to the root core issue of this life, it has very little to do with me and everything to do with pointing glory to him. That's the idea or the principle. And having that change of a lens changes everything in our perspective going through these current circumstances. It's not asking the question, what does this mean for my future? But rather, how can I bring glory to Christ in the middle of chaos? It's not asking, how can I protect my interests and my 401k, but maybe rather, how can I elevate the needs of others for God's glory? If there was ever a time, if we wanted to manage our circumstances well, the primary way to do that is to take eyes off of me 
and direct them to really what we're designed to do here is to bring glory to him. And I would suggest that happens best by loving people, going the extra mile to serve people, putting their needs above your own. And that love may take different forms. I would suggest one of the ways that love takes form is by following some of the city ordinances. It can be the most loving thing for you to do is to stay home and stay in your house. It'd be the most loving thing that you can do to, to not maybe buy every roll of toilet paper in the store. Maybe the most loving thing to do to, to maybe leave a couple of pieces of chicken for the next person in line at the grocery store. All of these are opportunities to serve. And when we're acting differently, when we're not operating with self as God, the rest of the world will take notice and God will be glorified. I didn't want to preach a, a whole long extended sermon in here, but I wanted to give a, a few thoughts and see how whenever we open God's word, it speaks to the circumstances that we're in. I believe that's the case here with Peter writing to this church that's been dispersed and maybe a bit discouraged. Hopefully these have been a few good thoughts for you to consider as we're managing our current circumstances. Let me pray as we wrap up. Lord God, I thank you for this chance to spend a little time in your word and for these words of action from Peter that understood trial like none other, someone that was close to giving his life ultimately for Christ. God, I pray that we would have a mindset going into the weeks to come. I don't imagine it's necessarily going to get easier, but maybe more challenging. That's an even greater opportunity to put the spotlight on you to serve others, to elevate others above ourselves, to invest in our families, to take things that were meant maybe for evil and redirect them for good. We thank you, God, for the wisdom that you provide through your word. God, we ask that we take these things to heart. In Jesus Christ's name I pray, amen. Will you sing with us? Great is thy faithfulness, oh.
presence to cheer and to guide strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow blessings all mine with ten thousand beside great is thy faithfulness great is thy faithfulness morning by morning new mercies I see all I have needed thy hand hath provided great is thy faithfulness great is thy faithfulness And it is his faithfulness that we depend on. I wanted to leave you with this. I read this this week. I really uh, appreciated it. It's Satan talking. He says, I will cause anxiety, fear, panic. I will shut down business, school, places of worship, sporting events. I will cause economic turmoil. Jesus' response, I will bring together neighbors, restore the family unit. I will bring dinner back to the kitchen table. I will help people slow down their lives and appreciate what really matters. I will teach my children to rely on me and not the world. I will teach my children to trust me and not their money and material things. Amen. God bless you. Any way we can serve you, we're happy to. Have a wonderful week.